0: The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's Local News for Wednesday, December 27, 2023. Tonight's program is a pre recorded special Headlines from Madison Decades Ago. It comes to us from featured contributor Stu Levitan. That's coming up here on the 6 p.m. Local News. Madison in the 60s 1963 a special look back at the city 60 years ago All these come on. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s death of a president. Wednesday, November 20, 1963. President John F. Kennedy begins his last full day in the White House sending a Western Union telegram to UW President Fred Harvey Harrington. Kennedy congratulates Dr. Harry Weissman and his colleagues at the UW Orthopedic Children's Hospital on that afternoon's dedication of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Memorial Libraries, funded in part by a quarter-million-dollar grant from the Family Foundation. Kennedy, whose sister Rosemary had developmental disabilities and suffered a botched lobotomy in 1941, salutes Weissman on his efforts to, quote, conquer the vast field of mental retardation and its attendant problems. In a six-hour visit that afternoon, Senator Edward M. Kennedy and brother-in-law R. Sergeant Shriver, the Peace Corps director, tour the laboratories, attend a scientific symposium, and hold a dedicatory luncheon at the Memorial Union. Thursday, November 21st. On President Kennedy's last full day alive, testimony before the State Industrial Commission reinforces the reason for the summer's March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Out of a combined workforce of 7,600, the nine largest local companies here have only 47 black workers. Friday, November 22nd. Humid with a chance of rain. Madison wakes to find the president's political trip to Texas is front-page news, Large crowds, but some catcalls in Houston and San Antonio, with Dallas on tap for today. Around 11.30 a.m., about 800 festive Badger boosters board a special 20-car Milwaukee Road train bound for Minneapolis and the UW-Minnesota football game. Eleven months after their thrilling Rose Bowl loss, Milt Bruins boys hope to salvage a disappointing season by at least keeping Paul Bunyan's axe. In downtown Dallas two Madison men see President Kennedy in his last few minutes alive. Lieutenant Bruce Kepke, UW 1963, returning to Madison for a month's leave after officer training in Oklahoma, has enough time before his train to watch the motorcade. He finds a good spot on the curb and waits. George Holmes, vice president of the family's tire company, is wrapping up a week-long business trip. He watches the motorcade from a nearby storefront. About 12.25 p.m., Kepke is 15 feet from the first family. Everybody's clapping, the president is waving. Then they go two more blocks and veer off to the right, toward the Book Depository building and the grassy knoll. Holmes' meeting breaks for lunch at a restaurant in a shopping center near Parkland Hospital. At 12.29, three pops. They sound like firecrackers. Kepke doesn't think that much about it and starts walking to the train station a few blocks past the plaza. He encounters a confused, frightened crowd. Nobody knows exactly what happened, just that something with the motorcade went terribly wrong. They think the uniformed Kepke might know something, but of course he doesn't. It's only when he sees the news on a TV set at the train station that he understands. It's a long, quiet ride north. Holmes is still having lunch at 1 p.m. near the hospital where Kennedy has just died. When the announcement is made a short while later, men cry and a few women faint and the restaurant empties. Holmes cancels the rest of his meetings and tries to fly back to Madison, but the airport is closed. David Marinus, 14, is in his ninth grade homeroom at West Junior High School when the principal Homer Winger makes the announcement. Aware he's from one of the few liberal families in the neighborhood, Marinus is taken aback by how his classmates react, students saying, Oh, well, so what? Kennedy was a commie anyway. As stunned as he was by the assassination, the future two-time Pulitzer Prize winner is even more stunned by the reaction. On the south side of town, 12-year-old Mono Adams Winston's Lakeside Street neighborhood is different. A big television is wheeled into her 7th grade classroom at Franklin Elementary, and other classes crowd in to watch. Everyone's crying, even the boys. Ben Sidron, 20, is at work, sorting records in the basement of Discount Records. There's a calendar hanging on the basement bathroom door where weeks earlier he had written The Cruelest Month on November's page, drawn blood-red daggers, and circled November 22nd. He quickly tosses the calendar in the trash and heads up State Street, wondering if the Friday night jazz series he had started the Memorial Union Rathskeller was still on. It wasn't. UW professor Gunnar Johansson can barely speak to his chamber music class. Choking back sobs, the penis says that the best thing to do is to listen to Beethoven. So he and violinist Rudolf Kolisch play the Kreutzer Sonata. At 2 p.m., the UW football team leaves Madison by chartered plane for Minneapolis. UW president Harrington wants the game postponed or canceled, but Minnesota regents say it should be played, quote, because of President Kennedy's deep interest in physical fitness and athletics. But by the time the team lands, the Minnesota president has agreed with Harrington, and the game is set for Thanksgiving morning. Harrington announces that all weekend classes and social activities are canceled, and that some classes will also be off either Monday or Tuesday, but not for the whole day. By late afternoon, at least four campus religious centers have conducted special prayer and morning services, with three more planned for the weekend and Monday. The Rathskeller is crowded but quiet. There's only a hushed murmur as people jam the main aisle and watch TV. In the Capitol Rotunda, Owen Rearson is causing trouble again. The 24-year-old is out on bail from his September arrest for disrupting a demonstration after the bombing deaths of four black girls in a Birmingham church Sunday school. Now Rearson loudly celebrates the assassinations. quote, a miracle for the white race. Wearing a swastika armband and giving the Nazi salute, Reerson tries to distribute racist and anti-Semitic literature before he's again arrested for disorderly conduct. By evening, a hard rain is falling. Saturday, November 23rd. William D. Bensley, 18, son of Dane County Judge William Bensley, and five fellow freshmen at Whitewater State College suddenly decide to drive to Washington for the November 24th funeral. They don't even tell their parents. With only $72 for food and gas, no change of clothes, and broken springs in the back of their 54 Ford, it's not easy traveling. But they all agree it was absolutely worth it. Sunday morning, they watch the funeral cortege from the White House to the Capitol, visit the Lincoln Memorial, and climb the 897 steps up the Washington Monument. Then they stand in line for hours with a quarter million others to view the President's beer in the Capitol Rotunda and see Mrs. Kennedy when she makes her unexpected return that night. It's an emotional moment. Madison police reportedly receive, but do not make a record of, a phone call from authorities in Dallas inquiring about Owen Reerson's activities and whereabouts. Early Saturday evening, two young women from the Greenbush neighborhood also spontaneously decide to drive to Washington for the services. Pauline DiMaggio and Linda Donath, 20-year-old graduates of Central High School, drive through the night and arrive in time to watch the funeral procession move from the White House to St. Matthew's Cathedral Monday morning. Madison mourns on Monday, the day of the president's funeral, with religious and memorial services from morning to night. There's little else to do. Except for local banks and financial institutions, almost every store and business is closed, at least until early afternoon. The Gissholt machine plant is open, but non-supervisory workers can take the day off. Oscar Mayer workers observe a moment of silence at 11 a.m. Even the bars of the Dane County Tavern League shut down from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The bad guys also take a break. From 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., during the funeral and burial, there are only six police calls, 50 is the norm for that period. Police and firemen later learn that they are excluded from Mayor Henry Reynolds' executive order granting compensatory time off for the few city employees required to work. The Hotel Lorraine Coffee Shop sets up some televisions to be seen from the lobby. Across the street, another set plays in the pharmacy of the Wisconsin Power and Light Building. A sound system on the Capitol Square blares patriotic songs. At 8 a.m., a flag-draped catafalque stands before the altar at St. Raphael's Cathedral as more than 800 pack the pews and aisles for a pontifical Requiem Low Mass. A few hours later, a Madison man plays a key role assisting Boston Bishop Richard Cardinal Cushing at a mass at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C. He is Father Walter J. Schmitz, 56, an alumnus of Central High School, son of the founder of the Hub, son of the founder of the Hub Clothing Store, and Dean of Sacred Theology at Catholic University in Washington. His brother Edwin, the current operator of the haberdashery, is watching the broadcast and can see his face clearly. After the burial, a silent crowd of 10,000 ascends Bascom Hill, seeking solace for one martyr in the shadow of another, for the state's official service at Lincoln Terrace. Carillon bells ring somber and slow, Till muffled drums herald the military ROTC units. The university choir sings hymns, the marching band plays the national anthem, and Honor Guard stands as UW President Harrington and other dignitaries mourn what was lost. As many of his fellow students weep openly, William Campbell, president of the Wisconsin Student Association, calls on them to, quote, take at least one stride toward becoming a profile in courage in support of civil rights and the poor. We can either meet this challenge or let it pass, he says. Then the benediction, taps, and the drums beating retreat. The crowd quietly melts away. Just in time for the 5 p.m. reopening of the four downtown movie theaters. At 8 p.m., more than 1,500 overflow the First Congregational Church for a multi-denominational service convened by the Madison Area Council of Churches. Something is wrong in our land, the Reverend Alfred Swan declares. We rely too much on violence. Too many weapons are flashed before the eyes of the young. Protestant and Jewish clergy read scripture and lead prayers, and many in the crowd cry as they sing America the Beautiful. Tuesday, November 26th, Dane County Judge Bensley orders Owen Rearson to the Central State Hospital at Waupun for a 60-day mental examination. For you to derive pleasure and satisfaction from such a wanton act of malicious violence is evidence to this court that you may be deranged, Bensley says. Rearson says that he is entitled to his, quote, political beliefs and that the Rotunda crowd should be charged for threatening him. Attorney Wayne Martin quits representing Rearson because, quote, he is now personally repulsive to me. Then Wisconsin officials discover Rearson is on parole. From a robbery conviction in California. At 7 p.m., the Madison Common Council adds a moment of silent prayer before the regular invocation. It's the meeting at which the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights introduces its Equal Opportunities Ordinance. It bans discrimination in housing and public accommodations based on race, creed, color, national origin, or ancestry, and in employment with the added category of gender. Neither the state nor any of its municipalities have such a law or ordinance. Most campus activities are still canceled or postponed, but some groups do meet. The Young Socialist Alliance presents a speech and a discussion of, quote, the United States war machine under the administration of President Kennedy. Thanksgiving morning the 28th, the Minnesota Golden Gophers gobble up the Badgers 14 to nothing. Epilogue, February 18th, 1964. Wisconsin authorities extradite Owen Rearson to California, where he resumes serving his sentence at San Quentin for second-degree robbery. Rearson dies in Washington, D.C. in 1986. He's 46 years old, the same age President Kennedy was the third week of November 1963. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. All the years combined. They melt into a dream. Madison in the sixties, December 1963. Madison makes civil rights history. In nineteen sixty-three, racial discrimination housing was perfectly legal in Wisconsin and very real. Only about 27% of Madison's rental units and 12% of the houses for sale were available to non-whites. The city didn't even have a meaningful board or commission working for civil rights. Instead, there was the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, MCHR, which the council created in 1952 as a powerless consolation prize for activists after their proposed fair housing ordinance was soundly defeated. In 1963... Marshall Colston, chair of the local NAACP and vice chair of the Mayor's Commission, took up the fight, pressing Mayor Henry Reynolds, a conservative businessman, to move the matter along. Not everyone agreed. Colston and others like him are making a big hullabaloo over a problem that doesn't exist, declared Darwin Schoon, executive vice president of the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Homeowners should be able to sell or not sell to anyone they chose, he said. Even as Schoon championed private property rights, racial unrest simmered on the Near East Side over word that a second black family might move into an area neighborhood. Several months of anonymous threats brought increased police surveillance. City Attorney Edwin Conrad started drafting an ordinance, working closely with a young attorney serving on the mayor's commission, future Wisconsin Supreme Court Chief Justice Shirley S. Abrahamson. Both Colston and Abrahamson had been appointed to the commission by the former mayor, liberal Ivan Nestigan. Although the mayor's commission was largely toothless, it did have some very active members, especially Chair John McGrath and Secretary Betty MacDonald. They created a group called the Tuesday Night Committee to coordinate public support. Several hundred individuals became actively involved. Such citizen activism was the key. Mayor Reynolds would become an important supporter, but he did not initiate the effort. Neither did any Alder. Without the NAACP's Lloyd Barbie and Marshall Colston, the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, and the Tuesday Night Committee, Madison would not have acted when it did, if it acted at all. That broad base was necessary because the real estate industry, which supported segregated housing so strongly that the Board of Realtors disciplined members who sold houses in white neighborhoods to black buyers, mobilized to fight the local fair housing provision, just as it did the later federal effort. December 10, 1963, was United Nations Human Rights Day. It was not a good night for human rights in Madison. Back then, the council met as the Committee of the Whole on Tuesdays for public hearings, debate, and a preliminary vote, with final votes on Thursday. More than 400 people packed the council chambers that night for a six-hour Committee of the Whole meeting devoted entirely to the Equal Opportunities Ordinance, supporters far outnumbered opponents, except from the real estate industry. The only realtor there in support was Patrick J. Lucy, owner of Madison's largest real estate company. Negroes here are the victims of a vicious and effective conspiracy, a disgrace for which we must all share the guilt the future governor and ambassador said. But the official position of the city's realtors, firm opposition, was expressed by Board of Realtors President Earl Espeseth, who acknowledges some discrimination but insisted, quote, city people can take care of the problems on a voluntary basis. At the time, Espeseth was a commissioner of the Madison Housing Authority. After all their coordinated organizing, supporters face an unforeseen problem as the meeting unfolds. A young black activist from the campus chapter of Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, tells the council that even if the measure passes, his groups will continue to send whites and blacks to test for compliance. Although Tom Bolden, co-chair of the Madison CORE chapter, later assures the council that testing would stop if the ordinance passes, Council President Alder Richard Kopp doesn't care. I don't think the residents of any ward have to answer to a group of university students under any circumstances, he says. Introduced and strongly supported by conservative Mayor Reynolds, the fair housing measure also has its strongest council support from conservatives, led by alderpersons Ethel Brown, Harrison Garner, and William Bradford Smith. Its sharpest opposition comes from alders aligned with labor, including COP, railroad switchman Leo Cooper, and union leader Harold Babe Rohr, who calls the NWCP, quote, a malicious force, even though his district contained more than 55 percent of Madison's black population. Let's face it, the Southsider said, the world is built on prejudice and discrimination. Northside Alder Cop acknowledges there's some discrimination in Madison, but asks, quote, should we pass a law because there are a few bigots? It's the very minimum we can do, Mayor Reynolds replies, so that we can go on record and say that all our citizens are equal as far as the city council is concerned. After almost two hours of debate, the chamber is still packed when the committee votes 12 to 10 to delete the entire housing provision. After a motion to kill the entire ordinance fails 13 to 9, the council adjourns at 1.30 a.m. The setback is bitter, but represents some progress from the 14-5 defeat the similar but weaker measure authored by then-alderman Nestigan suffered in 1952. Bear housing advocates had 48 hours to get at least one vote changed so Mayor Reynolds could break an 11-11 tie. It was the council's first and then still only female member, 10th Ward Alder Ethel Brown, who crafted the critical compromise to exempt rooms in private homes, and owner-occupied apartment buildings with four or fewer units. Fellow Westside Alder William Bradford Smith later said Brown's idea wasn't just tactical, but also, quote, to reflect the attitudes of her constituents in University Heights. Many of them rented rooms to UW students, Smith noted, but, quote, wouldn't want to open their homes to people of all races and colors, where they would have to share the same bathroom. Brown's amendment is quickly adopted starting a dizzying display of legislative freestyling that exempts absentee landlord apartments and all single-family homes from coverage. As a backlash to the core testing activities, the council also adopts the motion by Wilmar Alder Area George Elder, making it unlawful for anyone without a bona fide intention to offer to buy or rent housing, quote, for the sole purpose of securing evidence of a discrimination practice as defined in this ordinance. So, No private testing for compliance. As distraught supporters watch the records of exemption after exemption and consider pulling the entire matter entirely, an unexpected savior appears. For all the advocates organizing, it takes a bewildering move by an opponent to make the measure meaningful. Fair housing foe Alder Bruce Davidson moved to limit exemptions to only owner-occupied buildings, increasing the number of covered units from 6,300 to 15,631. His amendment carried, without debate, 20 to 2. But he still voted against the ordinance. Far east Side Alder George Rieger, who voted no on Tuesday, now voted aye, creating an 11 to 11 tie that Mayor Reynolds broke with an emphatic aye. Madison had made history with adoption of the first Fair Housing Ordinance in the state. The ordinance made it illegal to refuse to sell, rent, lease, or finance housing based on race, color, creed, or ancestry, with three major exemptions for certain owner-occupied properties single-family residences, houses with not more than four rooms, and apartment buildings with four units or less. Because the new ordinance still exempted more than 23,000 housing units, about 60% of the housing stock, open housing advocates were restrained in their celebration that night. But privately, they were thrilled. Alder Rohr, the fiercest foe of fair housing, thought Thursday night was a smashing success. But Friday brought an uncomfortable understanding of what happened. Reading the full account of what finally passed, he's aghast. My God, he exclaims. I had no idea what we voted for last night. Two weeks later, Mayor Reynolds appointed the charter members of the Equal Opportunities Commission, including holdover members of the Commission on Human Rights McGrath, McDonald, and the Reverend James C. Wright. He did not appoint Colston or Abrahamson. And that's this week's Madison the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you. These dueling headlines on May 6th in the morning, Wisconsin State Journal, an exciting downtown Madison. That afternoon in the Capital Times, crisis developing in downtown Madison. May brings big news on Big Bug Hill as the Findorf Construction Company sells one of Mansion Hill's great mansions, the William F. Vilas House at 12 East Gilman Street, across Wisconsin Avenue from the Edgewater. Park activists try to get the city to buy the large lakefront property for a public use, but it goes instead to the National Guardian Life Insurance Company for its new headquarters, a modernist black cube. The 104-year-old mansion is raised May 23rd. On the 14th, the City Welfare Board formalizes its policy of cutting off relief payments for recipients who don't try hard enough to find work. The dole, while economically satisfying, is psychologically crippling, the board declares. Welfare Director Elma Christensen says the board's policies, quote, weren't meant to be punitive, but in some cases they have to be. In June, the Madison Parks Commission officially names the recreation area in Lake Mendota between North Butler and North Franklin Streets as James Madison Park, the first public facility honoring the city's namesake, the fourth president of the United States and the father of the Bill of Rights. The area has commonly but unofficially been known as Conklin Park, after 19th century mayor and coal merchant James Conklin, whose holdings included a large ice house at the lakefront end of the North Hamilton Street axis. Joe Jackson, the economic development activist who's been working for decades to put the civic auditorium in this area instead of Law Park, got the city to buy the land from Conklin's descendants in 1939, and was Jackson who suggested this new branding, which is not subject to council review. The city plans to acquire additional properties to extend the park further east to the Lincoln School property. You are listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT, please stay with us. We will continue our special look back at Madison 1963 after this quick break for these important announcements. already listened to WORT either at 89.9 FM or at wortfm.org or via the WORT app, but we are also on the major social media platforms. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at WORT FM or join us on Twitter. Follow the station at WORT Radio, our news department at WORT News, our talk shows at WORT Talk and music at WORT FM underscore music. Let the algorithms know you want local media in your feed. Give us a follow. You might just want to share what you find. You say that you love me. Do you love me? Is it true? Welcome back to this pre-recorded special on Madison in the 60s, 1963. I'm Stu Levitin. Thanks for joining us. And now, back to Madison 60 years ago. Come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, 1963 Law and Disorder Police Inspector Herman Thomas was a hard-nosed cop, a former foreman at the Gissolt Machine Company, He attended the University of Wisconsin for a year and was an honors graduate at the FBI Academy. The only television he watched were football games, and he never went to the movies, except on assignment as Madison's censor, enforcing the ordinance banning any obscene or immoral picture in any theater or showhouse. Early January, 1963. Thomas gets a tip that the Majestic Theater is not letting minors in to see the film Phaedra, Jules Dassin's retelling of the classic Greek tragedy of a second wife's illicit love for her stepson. Thomas watches the movie with the beat officer, and they both agree that the soft-focus, blurred image, very safe-for-work love scene between the magnetic Melina McCurry and the young and sensitive Anthony Perkins is, in Thomas's words, overtly immoral. So he orders the Majestic's assistant manager to cut the offending scene or close the theater, Thomas later sends the other officer back to make sure the order is honored. Thomas says he doesn't like this part of the job, so the city forms a citizens' committee for future censorship assignments. April 23rd. Mrs. Frankie Howard, 38, the statuesque blonde wife of the president of the Chicago company that publishes the World Book Encyclopedia, leaves the taxi running as she goes upstairs at Lowell Hall, to confront junior Sharon Olson, whom she suspects of improper association with her husband Bailey. The co-ed, a saleswoman for Bailey Howard's Field Publishing Company, denies any wrongful contact with him. That's when Frankie pulls out the unloaded 25 caliber pistol and starts waving it around. The girl screams, the wife runs, but is arrested without incident getting back in the cab. The next day, she's fined $100. Ms. Olson... Twenty is named after the village of Sharon in Walworth County, founded by her great-great-grandfather. A mid-May midnight bongo party in the historic First Lutheran Church out in the town of Middleton soon attracts some unwelcome attention. Dane County deputies, who arrest 22 persons whom they describe as quote, real beatniks, including 11 UW students. Members of the interracial group, including 1950s UW football star Lowell Gooch Jenkins, are charged with criminal trespass and disorderly conduct. A piano player and some other musicians slip out a window and avoid arrest. When church officials testified that the building at the corner of Old Sauk and Pleasant Valley Roads was unlocked and essentially abandoned, and the deputies testified that the rhythm enthusiasts were polite and respectful, Judge William Bensley dismisses all counts but makes each defendant write a letter of apology. July 6, 1963. Crisis at the Crystal. Madison police arrest fugitive Daryl Sweatmore, 32, after he threatens murder and attempts suicide by cop inside the Crystal Corner Bar. The convicted forger had escaped three days earlier from an outdoor warehouse at Wapun Prison and come back to Madison to shoot his wife. That's what he told the bartender, who calls police, reporting a crazed man with a flintlock stuck in his waistband. With tear gas grenades and rifles at the ready and traffic blocked for a block around, Inspector Herman Thomas and Sweatmore's sister spend half an hour inside the bar trying to talk him down while his wife is kept outside. Sweatmore says he wants to be shot dead and takes some cops with him. Suddenly Sweatmore is distracted. Thomas dives and knocks him out. After they take Sweatmore away, Thomas discovers that he never had a gun, only the butt of one, fastened to the scabbard of an eight-inch knife. It's been a season for near tragedies at Eastside Bars. On May 25th, a stocky gunman suspected of knocking over a Milwaukee Savings and Loan office fired his thirty eight caliber revolver at and Detective Robert Ferris inside the Frontier Bar, 518 East Wilson Street. The bullet passed under the officer's armpit, while partner Detective Thomas McCarthy grappled with another armed suspect. I'm darn glad to be alive, Ferris said when it was all over. December 17th. Edgewater gun death reveals campus dope ring. Edgewater hotel manager Austin Faulkner just wanted a policeman to look in on a young guest who had run up a $74 room service tab. But when Madison Police Detective Edward Daly gets to suite 38, he finds a UW dropout, heir to a mayonnaise fortune, dead on the floor from an accidentally self-inflicted gunshot wound, and an unemployed, sedative-taking, bail-jumping check forger from Chicago leveling a loaded thirty-eight at him, while the pot-smoking, bongo-playing son of a former Republican congressman from Green Bay skedaddles. Daly knows all three. The dead man. Hal F. Hellman, 21, 445 West Gilman Street, frequent Madison visitor William Culbertson, over the third, 24, and Richard Johns, 19, one of the participants in the Lutheran Church festivities in May. They've been under surveillance since September, part of a police probe into a campus area drug ring. Johns, son of the late U.S. Representative Joshua Johns, and Hellman, grandson of the founder of the Mayonnaise Company, Both dropped out of the university in November. Charged with smoking marijuana and selling joints for a dollar, Johns faces a 10-year prison sentence. Over pleads innocent to six charges, including reckless use of a gun and attempting to obtain morphine with a forged prescription. As police confirm that a young Coet is also under surveillance and suspicion, the university issues a statement assuring parents that the drug ring involves quote, an extremely small number of their sons and daughters. The investigation into drug use on campus continues over the Christmas break, with arraignments for Over and Johns are held over for January. All the combined Mountain to a dream. Madison in the sixties, nineteen sixty-three. Race matters. The Wisconsin State Journal and Capitol Times disagree on almost every issue. The State Journal helped to kill the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Auditorium and Expo Center in 1961, and has been strongly pushing the city to build a causeway across Monona Bay. The Cap Times rails against the new roadway, and its editor-publisher William T. Evue is a friend and acolyte of rights. But they both agree that Madison is beset by systemic racism, which the city needs to address before a bad situation gets worse. As the country prepares for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, in which about 40 Madisonians participate, both papers give civil rights a special focus. On the 1st, the State Journal starts an 11-part, month-long special report entitled The Negro in Madison. The first headline is an attention-grabber. We're getting a Negro ghetto. It explains that because there are no local, state, or federal fair housing laws, blacks displaced from the integrated, multi-ethnic Greenbush neighborhood by urban renewal are moving to the only other area they can live, South Madison, which enables the white property owners there to move out and rent to the new arrivals. And as absentee owners, their concern for maintenance and upkeep drops sharply, compounding the already poor infrastructure. The Capital Times makes the same point in its August 8th story, Absentee Owners Letting Beld Street Ghetto Decay, City Negroes Caught in Squeeze. Under the August 6th headline, Racial Fears Block Sale of House?, The State Journal details how neighborhood pressure in a white area forced a willing seller to refuse to sell to a qualified black family. And it quotes a local realtor that half their listings cannot be shown to blacks at the seller's direction. A few days later, the Cap Times reports that Madison Board of Realtors President Earl Espethes has no comment on reports that deeds in the Westside Nacoma neighborhood contain racially restrictive covenants. Which they do. On the 15th, on the 15th, the state journal summarizes the ambiguous nature of discrimination which the dozen or so black pupils face in the 10,000-student-strong city school system, under the headline "Bias in Schools: No and Yes." Around that time, the school board reveals it wants to build a junior high school in South Madison, probably at the corner of Magnolia Lane and Cypress Way it would be part of a $9 million building program which school superintendent Robert Gilbert says will meet the city's needs until 1971. And there's little ambiguity in the State Journal's final report on August 25th under the headline, Clergy Call Race, Moral Problem. The Capital Times surveys the employment situation on the 7th under the headline, Madison Negroes Make Minor Dents in Local Job Bias, Few Firms Change Policy. It reports that CUNA now has six black employees, including a journeyman printer, administrative assistant, and assistant director of accounting, and that three of the city's four department stores employ blacks, including one store with six black women operating the elevators. There are no black clerks in the city supermarkets. Two days later, it gets personal, under the headline, Coulson Aiming NAACP Drive at Moneyed Society. Portrait of a Rights Leader. It reports that Marshall Colston, president of the Madison branch of the venerable Civil Rights Organization, is a mild-mannered militant who, quote, has been honing the local NAACP chapter into a fine-cutting tool to carry Negro protests to the unsullied and moneyed heights of Madison society. Among the initiatives of the 36-year-old state welfare supervisor, a strong local ordinance banning bias in employment and housing and the activist has little patience for his organization's more cautious members, especially middle-aged whites who joined the group as a liberal gesture when it was devoted to, quote, aimless, meandering policies. Neither paper addresses the relationship between blacks and the Madison Police Department. Perhaps they should have, as news breaks that a retired Madison policeman, from the days when many members of the force also belonged to the Ku Klux Klan, is trying to form a local anti-integration vigilante committee, which he describes as like the Klan, but without hoods. Earl Bonner, 69, who retired on disability in 1940, is so upset by civil rights marches near his California home that he started calling around here seeking support for his fight. So far, without evident success. On September 22nd, Close to a thousand people gather at the Capitol Square in the year's largest civil rights demonstration, occasioned not by legislation or aspiration, but by tragedy. The Sunday morning murder earlier this month of four black girls in the Birmingham, Alabama church bombing. But the march and rally sponsored by the Madison Committee for Civil Rights are temporarily disrupted by a swastika decked white supremacist pushing through the crowd and shouting racist epithets. Owen H. Rearson, 24, harangues the stunned and silent crowd until he is arrested for disorderly conduct. The marchers, mostly white, with a high percentage of students, bear black armbands. They marched around the Capitol twice, the group stretching three-quarters of the way around. Jail officials soon discover that Rearson, a Madison native, is on parole from San Quentin Prison in California for a conviction of second-degree robbery. Was racism the reason two Northside aldermen and so many of their constituents opposed a new apartment project on Northport Drive? Or were density, class, and traffic counts the issue? Either way, all were in play. The Xander Northport Apartments, just east of Sherman Avenue, opened in fall, the city's first and so far only multifamily moderate-income housing project. The five-building, 140-unit complex... Sponsored by the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME, is named for Arnold Zander, a Madisonian who helped found AFSCME here in 1932. Back then, it was called the Wisconsin State Employees Association. Because it's financed by the Federal Housing Administration, tenants have strict income limits. It's also integrated with five black families. Now me wants to build a companion complex across Northport Drive, just east of Dryden Drive. Also federally financed, also integrated. Some or all of which has the neighboring single-family homeowners fit to fight on two fronts. Area Alderman Richard Kopp and Leonard Porter, both of whom oppose the fair housing provision of the Equal Opportunities Ordinance, vehemently deny race as a factor in the neighborhood opposition. Kopp calls such claims a despicable effort by supporters to portray opponents as segregationists. He insists opposition is based on traffic, overcrowding, and property values for the nearby single-family homes. In September, opponents prevail at the Plan Commission, which rejects the necessary rezoning. But days later, after a stormy three-hour discussion, the Common Council reverses the commission and grants the rezoning 12 to 6. After reconsideration, a second session in October is even more contentious. An angry cop loudly denounces his colleagues after they reaffirm the rezoning, neighbors make thinly veiled political threats, and somebody turns off all the lights in the council chamber. A lawsuit filed by 26 neighborhood residents fails to stop construction. All the years combined, they melt into a dream. At the University of Wisconsin, President Fred Harvey Harrington makes very clear the administration has no interest in a research and development relationship with business interests. We want to encourage industry to do its own research, Harrington tells the regents in January. We don't want to develop a research park. We shouldn't take research off the campus, and we shouldn't bring industry on the campus. The university should not find new products. We should do the basic research— and industry should make the applications. On the 24th, UW Protection and Security Department hires its first female investigator, Mrs. Nancy Marshall, a former member of the Madison Police Department's Bureau of Crime Prevention. Marshall, a former home economics teacher in Sheboygan Falls, will handle investigations involving women and juveniles. On the 5th, the UW suspends three students, including Socialist Club President Judd Ginsberg, for reporting a wrong address while living in an illegal apartment at 917 West Dayton Street. The first week of March is a heady time for 19-year-old pianist Ben Sidron. On the 1st, the Racine native is a featured performer at the Military Ball, tickling the ivories in Inn, Wisconsin, outfitted for the night as a playboy lounge. On the 8th, the Ben Sidrin Quintet inaugurates live Friday afternoon jazz in a packed Rathskeller. On March 4th, the UW faculty reject a resolution that would ban university sports teams from playing schools from states that, quote, impede or attempt to impede civil rights enforcement. The existing policy prohibiting competition against teams from institutions that practice discrimination remains in place. On March 7th, with more than 10,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, designated by our government as military advisors and not combat troops, the group Students for Peace and Disarmament sponsors a public forum entitled, quote, Vietnam, Our Undeclared War. About 100 American soldiers have died in country. On April 10th, opposing the Northwestern Railroad's request to end the 400 service from Chicago to the Twin Cities, Dean of Students Leroy Luberg testifies before the Interstate Commerce Commission that UW students take 11,000 train trips annually. Also on the 10th, Jeff Greenfield, 20, the only two-time editor in the Daily Cardinal's 69-year history, wins the Matson Newsman's summer internship with Wisconsin State Journal, named after the paper's late editor. On April 23rd, the third annual UW Women's Day brings about 350 alumni and other state women to campus for a series of seminars. When you compare the desire of women for knowledge with the percentage of women in professional schools— President Harrington says, you can see we have barely begun doing the things that need to be done. And on the 25th, the Student Life and Interest Committee caps a long struggle for co-ed empowerment by approving the Associated Women's Students proposal to liberalize women's hours. Effective November 1st, seniors and women over 21st will have no hours, and juniors will have no hours on weekend. Starting with the coming summer session, The hours for house closings will also be extended to 1 a.m. May 2nd is quite a night on campus. At the Union Theater, United Auto Workers Union President Walter Ruther tells the capacity crowd that America is, quote, smug, complacent, and indifferent, and needs a stronger sense of national purpose, including progress on civil rights. While up the hill, in 272 Bascom Hall, beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti reads to a rapt overflow crowd, the last event on the Poets' 1963 series sponsored by the Union Library Committee and the Athenian Society. On May 6, the faculty makes voluntary ROTC permanent, as a two-year trial period maintains sufficient participation. Compulsory ROTC would have returned if fewer than 146 students, representing 75 percent of the 1959 level of 195 students, were enrolled. 178 students registered in 1961 and 155 in 1962, so the program stays voluntary. On May 21st, the Student Life and Interest Committee approves letting all senior students live in apartments, effective the fall of 1964. The current rules allow only seniors over 21 to do so. And at the end of May, two-time All-American Pat Richter, the only Badger since 1923 to earn nine varsity letters, and the holder of 17 school conference or national receiving records, signs with the Washington franchise of the National Football League, where he joins fellow East High Pergolder and Badger Dale Hackbart. On June 24th, the Library Committee endorses Library Director Lewis Kaplan's April decision to cancel the subscription to Ralph Ginsburg's sex-centered Eros magazine. Committee Chair Professor Mark Ingraham rejects the claim that this is censorship. Quote, freedom does not demand the purchase of material of doubtful educational value just because it is obnoxious to many citizens. On August 18th, the UW announces the appointment of Harvey Goldberg, UW-PhD 1950, a specialist in French history, as professor of history. Goldberg, who did his doctoral work under President Harrington, has been at The Ohio State University. On September 9th, the Twin Towers of Celery Hall, 10-story, $6.4 million dormitory for 1,100 male and female students, opens at the corner of North Park and West Johnson Streets, the first unit in the $28 million Southeast Dormitory and Recreational Area. That will house 4,000 students after the opening of Witte Hall next September and Og Hall the fall after. And on September 29th, Tom Hayden, the founding president of the Students for a Democrat Society gives a critique of American liberalism to the socialist club meeting in Great Hall. Madison in the 60s, Schools, 1963. As Robert Gilberts takes over as Madison's first new superintendent of schools since 1939, demographics drive the Board of Education to close one school in the central city and open two on the periphery. In the first major school redistricting in more than 20 years, the Board in early March votes to close the 47 year old Abraham Lincoln Elementary School on East Gorham Street after this school year. The school has only about half its capacity of 425 pupils. Closing it will save about $38,000 in annual operating cost and about $15,000 in teacher salaries. The board agrees to turn the entire parcel, including 330 feet of Lake Mendota frontage, over to the city. Mayor Reynolds says it has, quote, good possibilities as a permanent home for Madison's cultural groups. And the Parks Commission directs Park Superintendent James Marshall to develop a plan for that purpose. The Madison Art Association quickly expresses a strong interest in the property. Two days after voting to shutter that central city school, the board agrees to buy an 80 acre site on the northeast corner of Mineral Point and Gammon Roads for a new Far West Side High School. It will be needed by the fall of 1966, when West High is projected to be at capacity. The board also approves plans for a 600 pupil junior high school on the south side near Magnolia Lane and Cypress Way. Gilbert says the school will be needed by next fall, but he's, quote, not sure if we'll make it. The board plans on $9.3 million in construction from 1966 through the end of the decade. There's a new guide for uniform discipline among the recommendations. Understand the pupil's background, abilities, and needs have firm proof before punishment, don't take misconduct as a personal affront, never assign additional homework as punishment, stress cooperation rather than competition among pupils, and, quote, remember most pupils can be coaxed more easily than pushed and be willing to apologize if you make a mistake. In May, a change in teacher contracts to allow pregnant teachers to remain at work until the 20th week of pregnancy. Until now... Teachers were required to resign three months after becoming pregnant. Superintendent Gilbert says, quote, The biggest reason for turnover is that we have a lot of young married women who teach for us. And West Side area schools, along with the Lion House of the Vilas Park Zoo, are among the first of 28 Madison-area public buildings to receive supplies for fallout shelters. There are approximately 150,000 shelter spaces in the city, about half in downtown public buildings that are inaccessible at night. The Citizens Committee to Eliminate Civil Defense calls the fallout shelter program, quote, useless and futile and a waste of money. It's a clear case of edifice complex as September school bells ring in big changes. On the Far East Side, more than 800 attend the ceremony dedicating the Robert M. LaFollette Junior Senior High School on Flom Road. Madison's first new senior-junior high school since West opened in 1930. The low-slung $3 million facility is big enough to handle 1,500 students. On the far southwest side, about 200 attend the dedication of the Philip H. Falk Elementary School on Woodington Way. Falk, recently named chair of the Madison Redevelopment Authority, was superintendent from 1939 until his retirement on January 1st. And in October, The school board votes 3-2 against renting the Central High School Auditorium for presentation by UW History graduate student John Coatsworth, 22, one of 59 students who broke the ban on travel to Cuba this summer. James Sykes of the University YMCA sought to rent the room for Coatsworth to speak and show slides in a benefit for the Emergency Civil Liberties Committee, formed to defend four students indicted for flying to Cuba via Czechoslovakia. I personally think all these students were wrong, Board Vice President Dr. Ray Hegel says, because of, quote, the communism of this. I might as well get it out in the open. I favor letting them talk, Board Member Arthur Diney Mansfield replies. The more we get communism out in the open, the better off we are. After refusing the rental, the Board authorizes Superintendent Gilberts to grant the request anyway if he finds it, quote, feasible. Gilbert had earlier recommended approval, but on further review, opposes the proposal because of the fundraising aspect. Sykes points out that several groups, from the NAACP and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to the Audubon Society, have charged admission when using public school auditoriums. Gilbert says this is different. I don't think this is school board business, board member Mrs. Byron Birch declares. This is not a matter for the public schools. Her colleagues agree and a November 4th vote, this time unanimously, to reject the request. The Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union condemns the actions, quote, repressive, capricious, a discriminatory abuse of power, a breach of the public trust. And that's this year's Madison in the Sixties. For your award winning, history honoring WORT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. Because indeed this is 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio.